Have you ever wanted to go behind the scenes of a successful authority site and find out what really makes the business tick? Today, I'm going to be interviewing Tan Pham, founder of AsianEfficiency.com, a productivity blog. He'll be sharing with you how he built his business, including how he turned a personal blog into a business, his SEO traffic acquisition tactics, how he started a successful podcast without hosting it himself, his product strategy, including how he built up a successful subscription product, and how he built his business to serve him, and one that enables him to live the lifestyle that he really wants. Let's get started. Welcome to the Authority Hacker Podcast, the place to learn field-tested, no BS tactics to growth hack your online business, and finally, live life on your own terms. Now, your host, Gael and Mark. Welcome to the podcast, Tan. Hey, Mark. Good to see you here. Before we start, and we'll, we'll get to your, your story and how you built up your business in just a sec, can you give our listeners a quick 30,000-foot view of what your authority site is, how you grew your audience, and how you make money from your site? Yeah, absolutely. I run AsianEfficiency.com, one of the leading websites on productivity and time management. And we started about eight years ago, and uh, you actually were there along the way when I started it. And uh, the way we make money is we sell information products. So we have courses, audiobooks, ebooks, and we've been selling those to people all over the world. We cater to mostly executive and small business owners. And then most of our traffic is completely organic. So most of our traffic comes either from the podcast or from our SEO efforts. Awesome. And how did you get started in this? I know you mentioned you started eight years ago, but before that, I think I read somewhere that you you had some authority or affiliate sites before that and they didn't go so well or something happened to them. Can, can you tell us about that? Yeah, I've always been very interested in learning how to make a living online. And I remember back in the day when Google AdSense arbitrage was a big thing. For those who are listening, if you don't know, this was back maybe 2007-ish, 2008. It's been a long time. I was doing Google AdSense arbitrage where you basically buy Google AdWords ads, send them to a landing page where you have Google AdSense, and you would just then hope that people would click on one of the ads. And if the clicks from Google AdWords were cheap enough to where you can get you know a decent click per ad for the stuff you had on your landing page, that difference is basically your profit. And that was working really well for a while. And there was totally a little bit of a gray area at that time. <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay, this seems to be working. So let's build multiple sites and start doing that. And I made a decent living off that, doing that. And I thought, oh, this is great. Let's just continue to do this. And after a while, I got really lazy because I was making, as a college student, I was making like seven, $9,000 a month on average. I thought, oh, okay, this is fun. Um, like, this is way more money than I've ever made before. Let's spend it. And so I spent all my money. And long story short, Google eventually banned that strategy. And I lost all my sites overnight, essentially, and it stopped working. So from there, I had to start all over again from scratch. And so uh, at that time, people were talking a lot about you know following your passion and doing something that you're really passionate about and love and then eventually getting paid for that. Right? When you think about even today, people are start talking about that today as well. 
But back then it was like Gary V. And when his first book came out, he was talking a lot about that. And so I thought, oh, you know, what is something I'm really passionate about? Something I want to learn more about. And at that time, was I was studying a lot of productivity stuff. I was reading books and I was attending seminars on productivity, learning how to become more productive. And so I thought, hey, let's document this journey and share some of the things that I've learned along the way after implementing some of the things that really helped me. So I was able to read 35 books in one year, listen to 21 audiobooks, um, and go to several new countries and lose roughly 20 pounds or so all in one year. And I thought, oh man, this is really fun and cool and efficient. Like I, this totally resonates with me. And I started getting a lot of questions from friends and family about how I did things. So me and my friend Aaron at that time, we started AsianEfficiency.com as kind of a fun hobby project where we shared how we do things. And then by accident, we had a lot of major publications linking to us and finding our content. And then from there, it kind of took a life on its own. And you didn't have any sort of business intent when you you started it, or was that kind of something that you saw it could grow into? I also did not think this could turn into a business at that time because I was just so passionate about productivity that I just really wanted to get the word out. And that's why I was so consistent with publishing content every single week. I would write something every single week and release it on Tuesday. And we've been doing that for the last like eight years now. And we've never missed a deadline and something I'm still passionate about today because productivity is always evolving. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe in the back of my head, I thought, oh, maybe one day this could turn into a business. But it wasn't until six, seven, eight months into it, I started to get a lot of emails from people saying, hey, I love your contents. Can I hire you? Can I buy some of your courses? Or do you have any products that I can buy from you? And I had to say, no, <laughs> like I don't have anything at all. I don't have anything for sale. And then after a while, I just started to get so many emails that a light bulb went off and I said, oh, maybe this could actually turn into a business. And I think the hesitation I had at that time was there weren't a lot of similar or competing businesses at that time that were doing stuff that we were doing. At the time, there were a lot of productivity blogs started by like hobbyists as well, but they weren't running businesses. They weren't selling information courses. They weren't selling anything. It was just a hobby for a lot of people. And I think that's that was part of the hesitation as well. When I think about it, that kind of held me back from actually turning it into a business because I had never seen somebody else do this successfully and make a living off it. So knowing what I know now, and if you're listening to this and you have a suspicion that nobody else is doing this either, I can totally understand why you might be feeling that this maybe couldn't turn into a business. But if you have a lot of traffic, you have a lot of people coming to you and they find your content helpful, uh, I think there's something there. How did you get traffic initially? What was your major acquisition strategy? Was it SEO? Were you running ads? What were you doing? Yeah, I was learning from you and Gail at the time. So when we were working, <laughs> this is going way, way, way back when I was living in Budapest as well. I believe the first company, the first incarnation was was Mad Cheap SEO, I think it was called at that time. Do you remember those yep. days? <laughs> the glory days. <laughs> so we had a beautiful office in, in central Budapest. And I was learning from you guys on how you guys did SEO and and how we were servicing clients at that time. And I thought, oh, this is a really cool strategy. Seems to be working for the clients. And so I started to apply some of those ideas that I learned from you and Gail to Asian efficiency. So we started doing link building, 
and some of the other things that we uh, were doing at that time. And some of the really old school stuff, like spinning articles and all these different things. <laughs> and for those who are listening, you might be wondering, what, what is all this stuff? Well, <laughs> don't worry about it. That stuff does not work anymore. But nowadays, we just focus on SEO in terms of like publishing content and just getting mm-hmm. as many people as we can to link to it. And that has been the strategy since day one. So I was just really committed to the idea of Right, let's publish something once a week at least, right? And in, in the beginning stages, it was just good enough to publish consistently. That was kind of the main strategy at that time, where as long as you publish every single week or consistently, Google would just reward you with more traffic. And a few years ago, that kind of stopped working, where if you just publish content all the time, that really didn't work as well. So from that point on, we kind of had to focus on, okay, let's make sure we do some outreach. Let's make sure we get featured on other websites so we get links organically to our websites as well. So over the last two, three years or so, I've been really more focused on reaching out to people, building organic relationships with people, and then getting featured on their website or mentioned on there. So to kind of build stuff organically over time. So you're very good at creating systems and processes in in your business and in your personal life. We were just talking about this before we started recording. How do you go about systematizing something like personal outreach and personal relationships when it comes to link building in, in that context you mentioned? Yeah, there's different schools of theory on this, and I'm not sure which one you know is the best one for anybody out there. For me personally, I want everything to be as organic as possible, and I want it to be where there's a winning combination for all people involved. So when I said, hey, we want to have more links to our websites, we want to rank for certain keywords... How do I make this happen, right? So one is, okay, we need to have content around certain keywords, right? So let's do that first. That kind of forms the foundation. And when it comes to processes and building systems around anything, the most important thing I find is that you want to do it first and foremost and just get it out of the way first. And once you think you're going to repeat it multiple times on the third or fourth iteration, that's when we usually start to document something. And so when we said, hey, Let's focus on these keywords. Let's build our organic traffic. Let's focus on our SEO. On a high level, I basically said, okay, let's put some foundation content in place. Right? We know which keywords we want to rank for. These are the keywords that we have. Let's build some epic contents and stuff that people really want to read. And let's do some research behind this. Right? So we started to do research when it comes to not just keywords, but also what people were saying on the forums, on Reddit, uh, within our own community as well. People who are emailing us like tickets with challenges that they had related to certain topics, a private forum that we have. So we started to look at all these different areas. And once we kind of like had our research process nailed down, the next time we did something like this, I basically told the team and I said, hey, let's try to document this so that when we do it next time, we're going to save time and uh, save money that way. So we have the keywords and we have the content in place. And next thing we did, uh, we said was, okay, let's make sure we do some outreach and try to get either a signature talk going on where we can talk about these topics or have like a podcast series or like guest posting series in place. So if let's say we had a topic on procrastination, right, which is one of our topics, and we wanted to rank for that particular keyword, then we would have the content in place about procrastination. So we talk about different things like procrastination tools, apps, uh, 
techniques, strategies, and so on. And then from there, we would then uh, reach out to people who wrote about procrastination topics or would have websites that would talk about similar stuff. So for example, in our case in industry, a lot of people would be talking about personal development or self-help and that kind of stuff. Those are the audiences that they have that I would like to have as well. And so when I think about building organic traffic, it's not just more traffic necessarily, because I definitely thought about that first and thought, you know, more eyeballs is always better. But I've realized over the years that if you get the right kind of people coming to your website, not only is your conversion rate a lot higher, but those are the people who are actually going to buy your stuff as well. So it's not just only more eyeballs, but also the right kind of eyeballs. And so in the beginning, we would just reach out to anybody. But what I've learned throughout the process is if you can get the right kind of audiences coming to your site, I'll even write a blog post for a website that maybe has like a thousand visitors a month. Because I know that those people who are listening, especially if they're hardcore fans of that person or website, if they come to our website, um, they're probably going to like our stuff as well and probably going to buy from us as well. And if you take into account like the lifetime value of everything, yada, 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 it, it all makes it worthwhile. So that's kind of like how I look at that. Yeah, I think that's super important to recognize as well that at the end of the day, traffic is just a vanity metric. That's your business doesn't support itself. You don't pay your employees with traffic or with Google Analytics number. It's it's revenue and profit at the end of the day. So like a thousand visitors who are very likely to buy your course versus a million visitors who have no interest in buying any of your products, which would you prefer? I think it's, generally it's pretty obvious. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, when you're actually outreaching to people though if we can sort of drill down into that for just a sec let's say you've you develop your your list of who you want to contact who you want to reach out to how do you actually go about doing that do you use a certain set of tools do you have certain scripts that you say or how much do you customize it what's your kind of take on that oh i'm really old school when it comes to this i'm the old guy who uses Google Sheets. Well, I guess that's a little bit more modern than an Excel document, but I'll use Google Sheets. And then I'll usually start off with my internal relationships that I have. So what I mean with that is I'll ask people in my company and in my team if they know anybody or resources that they have or connections that they have. And then I'll usually go to my quote-unquote network. So the people that I've met over the years that I know through so either like going to conferences, being part of masterminds, or just people that I know from just being out there in the world. And then I'll reach out to them or I'll post it on my Facebook and I'll say, hey, you know, I'm looking to get featured here or publicized here. Do you know anybody? And so I'll start to reach out to people and I'll sometimes text message and send emails to people in my network as well. And so I always like to start there because I have good relationships with a lot of people that I know. And they're willing to help me. I'm always willing to help them as well. So we have that kind of relationship where we want to help each other. And from there, it kind of just snowballs over time. And that's how we got started. So now if I ever want to get featured on X website or Y resource or magazine or whatever, I probably have enough people now in my network that know somebody who works there or can connect me with somebody there. So I basically started off internally with people in my team, with people in my company, to now my own internal network, to now having said people that they know that willing to introduce me to the next level of people. So now you get into kind of like the weak ties idea. 
And so it just kind of grew organically over time. And if you know enough people that are doing stuff online, are having success out there in the world as well, they probably know a ton of people. So if you just build a relationship with a few of those, they can introduce you to a ton of people. And nowadays, uh, when we do outreach for for our own stuff, we like to, again, start off internally as much as we can because, Mark, you and I have a good relationship. And if I come to you and, and say, hey, Mark, do you know so-and-so potentially that works at this magazine or this website? Because you and I have a good relationship, it makes it so much easier to get publicized there than versus me going cold, right? So I like to use warm introductions as much as possible. And I will say the key to making that work, and part of that is honestly just time, right? The more time you spend doing this, building relationships with real people, the more value gets created over time. And it's not something that I like to rush. And personally, I'm not a big fan of just reaching out cold to people or to certain websites. I just have very low success rate with that. And I know a lot of people do that with a lot of success. But personally, for me, that doesn't really jive with me. I like to get as many warm introductions as I can. And one of the things I've kind of learned along the way is the bigger your business grows, the more it's about relationships, whether that's in politics, right? Like if you look at, for example, what Facebook is doing, they're building all these relationships with all these different governments and countries. And it's the same thing, you know, whether you own a small business or a big business, the bigger you grow, the more you realize and learn that it's really about relationships. And so that's why I've been really fostering those over the last couple of years. And that translates into eventually more organic traffic and publications and, and so on. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good point as well about kind of how to put it, like having a value add kind of relationship situation where you're not just going to someone and saying, hey, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? Because you've you've sort of fostered that relationship over time and helped them out whenever they've needed it, provided value over the years. Then when it comes to comes to the point when you do need something from them, it's a no-brainer. Like if you come to me and ask a, a question like that, can you introduce me to someone? It's it's not even a second thought. It's an automatic yes. I can see how that'd be hugely valuable. If you were starting from the scratch in, let's say, a different industry where perhaps you didn't know so many people, what would you do in the initial sort of six months to a year before you got to that point if you're still trying to achieve the same goals? Yeah, knowing what I know now, I think when you come from a position of value, it makes things a lot easier. So, for example, if you have a popular website or popular podcast or you have a lot of traffic or you have some sort of quote-unquote big asset, whether that's authority, brand positioning, uh, a big audience, then you have a lot of leverage to get publicized in different places. Right? So focusing on building that, I think, makes it so much easier, everything else that comes after that. right? So to flip that around, if you have very little to no traffic, you have a very small audience, it's kind of difficult to get featured on TV, right? But if you have a big audience and a lot of people know about you and you're just organically focusing on building that, then it's so much easier to get on other websites and publications. So that's how I built Asian Efficiency. And if I were to start all over again, I would probably do the same thing. And just focus on, okay, let's make this the best thing in the world. Let's make the product, let's make the presentation amazing, something that people really want and really solves a big pain point. 
And once I have that in place, then I would just reach out to people and craft a really good story. And one of the things that I've learned a little bit too late, but wishing what I had learned earlier was just, for example, the story brand framework. So there's a great book called Story Brand by Don Miller that you can pick up on Amazon. It basically helps you kind of craft your story behind your business. And eventually you you realize from doing this long enough that it's really the story that sells stuff. So if you have a good story about your business, about who you are, and if you pitch that or you just casually bring it up with people, that usually will sell itself. So if you have something awesome going on, I would definitely go check out StoryBrand to have a course as well. Again, I'm not affiliated with them. I would just really love their stuff. And you can just start off with the book and implement it yourself. And if you kind of have that framework in place, then whenever you go out in the world and you just tell your story, people will either say, oh, yeah, that sounds awesome. Like, I would love to you know, share your message with others or you'll get something very similar along those lines. And so that's the kind of stuff that you want. And so if you don't have like a big asset, like a big audience or a lot of traffic, then having a really good story that you can tell to people and how you help people and solve problems will make it so much easier for you to get featured. And uh, whenever you do outreach or try to get yourself out there, having a good story is one thing I wish I had known earlier. Awesome. And I wanted to change tracks a little bit and talk about your, your podcast for a sec, because I saw you have 230 something episodes now. So it seems you've been doing that for, for quite a while. How far through your journey of your site, when did you decide rather to launch your podcast and how successful has it been? Oh man, that's a funny and interesting story. So we started releasing, I believe the first episode in either 2016 or 2015. So it's been only been a few years now. And personally, I've always been very resistant on launching the podcast. And the reason was the analytics and the data behind podcasts is very obscure. The tracking is not that great. The analytics tools and such aren't that great. And it's kind of hard to measure the ROI on a podcast episode or just having a podcast in general. And so I was always against it for one or two years or so. And my employees just kept saying, Tim, we need to launch a podcast. Like, this is the thing. This is the window of opportunity. Like, this is going to be the next big thing for us. Like, you really have to do this. And (laughs) I kind of said, no, like, I don't believe in this. Like, I think there's a big audience out there, but I don't know how we can monetize it. And I think it's going to be worth our time. And so there was basically two things that kind of convinced me to eventually launch it. One was something I still do today is I talk to my clients and customers all the time. So people who've bought courses from us, programs from us, I will usually spend roughly four or five hours a week, every single week, just talking to our customers, just to kind of get an idea of like what's going on in the marketplace, what kind of problems they're having, pain points that they're dealing with, because it just gives me a lot of ideas for content to create, but also eventually uh, what kind of products and services we should build going forward. And I was just hearing that a lot of them were listening to podcasts. So that was kind of like the first hint. Uh, The other hint was I had a couple of employees who were really passionate about this. And as part of my retention strategy for keeping them on, I said, hey, okay, we're going to launch a podcast. You guys are going to run it. Like, go ahead and have fun, right? So it was really just part of a retention strategy to keep them in the business and to make them happy. And so I said, okay, yeah, you know, I know our clients are listening to podcasts and you guys will really want to do this. So let's go ahead and do it. 
And <laughs> looking back now, I kind of wish we did start earlier because now it's one of our not only biggest drivers for traffic, but also the engagement and the retention for our subscription side of our business is huge. So one of the insights that we've learned that a lot of people don't know is that one of the reasons our subscription or churn rate, I should say, is so low, and this is my suspicion, is that a lot of them are also listening to our podcast. And for some reason, they just associate the high quality content of the podcast with our subscription business so that we just noticed that Everybody that is in our subscription business side of things and they listen to the podcast, they almost never leave the membership area. I thought, wow, this is really interesting insights. And all the clients that I talk to nowadays, they all mention that that they love the podcast, they learn so much from it. And even though it's a free resource and medium, just because you know they're part of our community and also listen to the podcast, for some reason they just associate the two together. And it's just really an interesting observation that I could never you know, think of or even realize. And so over the years, we still wanted to kind of like monetize it in a different way because, again, it's kind of hard to measure the churn rate and correlate in that with you know, the, the membership site and, and so on. And so eventually, we did make a decision to introduce sponsorships as well because our eyeballs and, and viewership there was just growing a lot. And... I kind of took the quote unquote Tim Ferriss approach saying that, hey, you know, there's a lot of costs associated with running a podcast. And so we want to make sure that it is self-sustainable in itself as well. So by introducing sponsors that we resonate with and that we truly believe in, we can have a win-win situation. So our audience discovers new products and services that we enjoy and uh, they get, you know, the exposure that they want. So yeah, so now it's been one of our biggest assets today. And we actually now get more podcast downloads than block traffic now, which is kind of crazy. And so, uh, yeah, I wish I had started it earlier, to be honest. That's really interesting, uh, especially the part about the obscurity of the podcast analytics and, and data. It's something that we've also struggled with with, with this podcast, actually. It's easy to, when you're sort of looking at starting a podcast, I think, view it entirely as an acquisition channel, when in fact, it's also equally a strong engagement channel, as I think you're, you're seeing there with the, the people who subscribe to your podcast and are also on your, your, your paid list as well. When Gail and I are typically doing the, the podcast, it's, it's really is just the two of us in different rooms, but just having a chat most of the time. And it, it's hard to sort of visualize the thousands of people listening to it at various points in, in their life. And it really only struck us when I w- went to a few events and there's several people there came up to us and were like, oh yeah, I listened to your podcast. I've listened to every single episode. And I'm like, wow, that's that's crazy how deep someone can kind of know you without having ever met you before. So I think it's podcasting has been been super powerful for us, and yeah, clearly it's, it's working a lot for for you guys as well. Uh, yeah, having that feedback loop there, I think, is the missing link for most people who run a podcast. Because if you just look purely at the numbers, you see, oh, we have five hundred downloads today, a thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand, but these are just numbers, and they don't really mean anything. But until you actually meet people in person, you hear their stories of how your podcast episode affected them and how it helped them. You don't see this, you know, in your PL statement, right? You don't see that happening anywhere. But just from talking to people and having that feedback loop of, hey, you're seeing 
this podcast episode having effect on people, that's just going to trickle down later into whatever product and offer you're going to put out there down the line. And so if you're listening to this and you have a podcast and you feel discouraged about the fact that you see your download numbers going up, but not your sales, I would not worry about that. Honestly, just keep going. As long as you get people on your email list and keep them coming back to your uh, content, eventually it is going to pay off. You mentioned that you don't actually run the podcast yourself or you, you have a lot of help from from your team who essentially run most of it, as I understand. How does that work from a company perspective? I know it's something I would be very anxious about kind of bringing in someone to, to run our, our podcast, but it seems like you've done that from, from day one. Can you just talk a little bit about how that's actually worked in terms of your your brand? Has anyone sort of said, oh, where's Tan or questioned it from from that perspective? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, limiting beliefs that I had to challenge myself on or not limiting beliefs, but just beliefs and assumptions that I had to challenge myself. So from day one, I said, hey, you know, you guys can run the podcast. I'm not going to be involved as much, even though I'm the face of the company and the founder of it. I still want you guys to run the show. So I've always been a big believer of building multiple personalities in my company and have them be out there and interacting with our clients and customers. And I'm doing the same thing, but just uh, being the founder, I'm a little bit more behind the scenes sometimes behind certain projects. And so I said, hey, if we're going to run this podcast, you guys are going to run it, right? And long story short, they did a great job. They grew you know, the podcast significantly to new milestones, and it's been bigger and better ever since. Even though those personalities have left the company even, I had two people who were co-hosts and hosts, and they are not now not part of the company anymore. And even though they left, the, co- the company and the podcast kept growing as well. So it was really interesting because I thought, oh man, if they're leaving, like our podcast is going to die. People are not going to resonate with are you know host anymore and, and they're not gonna like our content. But I've actually learned that it actually doesn't make that big of a difference as long as the brands and positioning and the promise of your podcast is still the same. So the way we structured it, and this is something we've been doing whether it was you know the blog or the podcast is hey this is a podcast by Asian efficiency right the company this is our promise to you like we want to make sure you get all your important work done in the time you have without having to sacrifice your health family and things that matter to you and then we get into the show so we talk about actionable things that you can do that are really simple and so as long as we level up to these things we mentioned the company name the brand and the promise that we want to deliver to people, it really does not matter who teaches it or who's talking on the podcast because they eventually, at the end of the day, kind of associate it with the company and the brand. And so as we have had multiple hosts throughout the years and people changing positions and and so on, it really didn't make any difference. Uh, If anything, anytime somebody left and somebody else took over, the podcast started to grow, which was kind of counterintuitive. And so, yeah, it's just really interesting how that works. And I think I felt confident going into it because we have a lot of courses. In the beginning, it was mostly me teaching the courses. And then I started introducing other people that I've hired to teach the courses as well. And you start to realize, oh, actually, you know what? It doesn't make that big of a difference who's teaching it as long as the material is really good. Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, assumptions and beliefs that I had to challenge myself on. And so when I see other people who have podcasts or websites or big personalities, fear this. I would love to talk to them 
because I've just seen that, you know, it doesn't make that big of an impact or difference than you think it does. Uh, that's so interesting, actually, because we're, we're, I mean, essentially in that exact position, Gail and I, we do the podcast almost entirely ourselves and produce all the the course content. But uh, yeah, that's, that's really eye-opening, actually. I, I just want to ask one more question of the podcast, if that's okay. How do you actually go about acquiring sponsors for it? Do they reach out to you? Do you reach out to them? How do you sort of develop those relationships? Yeah, currently we work with a agency that does that. So we have a intermediary to kind of help us find sponsors. From all the people that I've talked to who run big podcasts, you do make the most money when you go directly to the companies that you think is a good match. However, what I found is that it also takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of time to manage and just making sure everything is done on time. And you really have to assign one person to kind of like run the show, make sure that the deals get brokered and you know paperwork is all done, taken care of and, and so on. And I didn't want to spend personally my team or people on that. So I said, hey, let's just work with an agency. Let's, let's have them run it and they get a percentage of all the deals that get brokered. So the bigger deals that they bring in, you know, the, the more money that they make and the more money that we make as well. And so we've been really happy with that kind of model where we just work with an agency that does that. And so they get a percentage of every single deal that they that we approve. So we still have to look at every single thing. And I have somebody on my team who basically knows like what's a good fit, what's a terrible fit. And so I'm usually not even involved in that whole process. I just know that we just work with an agency and it's been a huge time saver. Now, again, if you want to really maximize your profit, and I know somebody who works directly with companies, they do make more money per episode or per you know CPM. But it's also so much more overhead and so much more like time and stuff that you have to deal with versus uh, we just, you know, have kind of sponsors lined up over the next four to six weeks. And uh, we don't have to do much other than kind of like read the ad, uh, make sure it gets approved and then send it out there. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And what's the revenue model for that look like? Is it you get paid per thousand downloads or listens or is it sort of fixed fee? How, How does it work? Yeah, so there's usually a CPM. So per thousand downloads, you can get paid a certain amount of dollars, right? So you mm-hmm. could have like, let's say a $50 CPM. So that means for every thousand downloads, you get $50, right? So if you have 10,000 downloads per episode, you get $50 or 500 bucks, 10 times 50. That's a really straightforward model. And the better CPM that you can negotiate, obviously, the higher you get, the more money you get paid. And then usually the agency will take a percentage of that. So what I have found is that some advertisers will also only advertise to U.S. listeners. So, for example, even if your podcast has, say, 10,000 downloads, they only want to pay for U.S. listeners. So maybe like 80% of your listeners is based in the States. So then they would pay basically for 8,000 downloads. So if you have CPM of you know $50, that would mean 400 bucks for that. And some sponsors and advertisers are willing to kind of like go worldwide and then they basically pay for all your downloads. So that's kind of one sneaky thing to be aware of. If you're getting into sponsorships, just make sure that gets clarified and negotiated upfront where you know if you want to advertise to our US listeners, maybe the CPM is higher or uh, if you want to go global, then this is the CPM. Or you know, if you're talking about CPM and advertisers, are they just 
catering to US or North America? Or are we talking global numbers here? So that's something I wish I had known earlier before getting into this, mm-hmm. because I got all excited about these numbers. And then I learned that some advertisers just wanted to do US audience. And I thought, oh, okay, yeah, that definitely changed the economics a little bit. In terms of your other sort of sources of traffic, do you sort of do any YouTube or do you have any sort of paid ads going? What does that side of the business look like? Yeah, so we run some paid ads as well. We run a lot of Facebook traffic where we do basically lookalike audiences. So uh, we push a lot a lot of our best performing contents. So best performing meaning like there's a lot of people who really enjoy this content. They leave a lot of comments on there. They say or email us saying, hey, this is amazing. This has been really helpful. So once we kind of have an idea of what that looks like, we basically have, I believe right now, like 15 to 20 articles that we just set a budget of like 100 bucks a day on. And just say, hey, let's just push this out to the people out there in the world. And we just started off doing that. So my mindset was just really simple. If we have this amazing content, let's just make sure we get it in front of people, right? So you could do it the old school way where you're just trying to reach out and trying to get featured that way. But we're also willing to spend advertising dollars behind that as well, right? So if you think of it as like having a billboard, it's kind of like that. And... I basically said, hey, let's not worry about you know retargeting. Let's not worry about trying to get a opt-in from this. Let's just literally get the content out there. And so we would set you know, a budget for, let's say, 100 bucks a day per article and just put it out there and just not even worry about like how many email subscribers we get or how many eyeballs we get. Let's just spend this money to get the content out there. And my mindset behind that was just like, I'm building my brand. So the more my brand is out there, the valuable it becomes over time. So it's kind of a quote unquote long-term play in that sense, because I'm not looking for short-term gains of like email subscribers or new podcast listeners or anything like that. Um, I just know that if I have the right kind of eyeballs getting to my website over time, that's going to turn into you know more revenue, whether it's through email subscribers or podcast listeners or whatever. And so that's kind of how we started off. And, you know, we just did one article at a time. We kind of figure out like what kind of ad was working for this particular article. And then you start to kind of see people sharing stuff over time. So you start to get even more traffic. And then I'm sure you've seen this too. Like once one winning ad really works, people start to share it. You get a lot of organic traffic. And if you put more money behind it, it's just it just drives a lot of new traffic to your website. Snowballs, um, yeah. Yeah. So I just kind of took that approach and not even worried about like, oh, you know, I want our email subscriber opt-in to be like $1.50 per email or something. Like I was not even <laughs> worried about that. That was something we would focus on much, much later. And now we we do run retargeting ads as well for people who come to the site and try to get them to opt-in and or either attend a webinar that we do. But that was like way, way, way later. I'm talking like literally a year and a half, two years later, because we were just so focused on like, oh, let's just get the content out. So if you have some budget you're willing to spend and set aside and willing to quote unquote lose it without you know blinking an eye, I would say put it behind some of your best performing content and get it out there because that's basically your way of investing money in the business. So anytime we were making a decent amount of profit, I would say, hey, let's take a percentage of that and just put it into promoting our content. And so that's just, you know, builds the brand and the value of your content over time. So that's been a big uh, traffic source for us. And then other things we've been trying to get into is like a little bit more video, but we haven't honestly pushed too much of that. And it's just 
one of those things where I really would like to get into it and I might regret not getting into it earlier like I did with the podcast. But uh, we've been just so focused on just one channel at a time and just trying to nail that down before we move on to the next one. I think that's really, really important what you just said there. And I I just want to sort of highlight that. A lot of the successful people that that I talk to adopt this strategy. So they, they pick one thing, one traffic acquisition source, one kind of product model, one monetization model, and they just make it work. They, I'm not talking about just scaling it, but they also focus on the, the, the quality of it as well. So they, they do a really good job building their systems, building their processes, building their team that can, that can execute this, this one strategy and take that approach. I think it's very, it's a bit of a trap to look at a big site such as Asian Efficiency uh, as a newbie and think, oh, I have to do all of these things. They have the all the different channels that they're they're currently doing, and you know, build webinars, build all these different kind of products and subscription models, and kind of get a bit overwhelmed by all the things that you could potentially be doing. When in fact, just focusing at the beginning on one strategy, one traffic acquisition strategy, one monetization strategy. And, and executing that well before, before you repeat it, I think it's a, it's a big lesson there. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we teach that to our clients, right? We, we tell them, focus on one thing at a time. Just don't multitask. Don't do three or four things at the same time. Just do one thing at a time. And we had to adopt that to our own business as well. And it's hard, man, because if you see people doing Facebook Lives, you see them doing YouTube, you see them running a podcast, they, they have a blog. Chatbots is the new thing. Yeah, like you have to do all of that stuff. And I, you know, I definitely fell for that myself too. I definitely, you know, ran a conference at the same time while selling our subscription membership area and then also our online courses, doing launches, and then try to do vlogging at the same time and doing all these different things. And while I love all these different things, and they're all great ideas, in my opinion, the timing was just off, right? So if I, had to go back and do it all over again. I would do the same thing, just one thing at a time. So maybe focus on you know organic traffic first, and then the podcast, and then YouTube, and then and so on. And so uh, yeah, there's almost like exponential benefits and results that you get when you focus on one thing at a time versus like trying to do five things at the same time. So I definitely agree with that. And if you're listening to this and you're thinking, oh man. I, the thought ever came across in mind where you have to do multiple things, like listen to this now and just do one thing at a time. You're going to be so much better off. I think part of the reason for that uh, to me seems to be you have to figure each new tactic or each new area out to an extent. And there's, there's several levels to it. There's kind of the basics of if you're just getting into SEO, what do you need to do there? But if you are really, really good at SEO and you really know what you're doing, the activities that you're performing are completely different. It takes a lot of time and a lot of experience, and it's not always possible to completely shortcut that, even by you know training or, or courses or, or, or whatever. There's a certain amount is just time and, and kind of grit that you need to, to grind through to, to get to that, that high level. Yeah, so. the beginning of every single channel that you're trying to grow is going to be really slow and you're not going to see a lot of progress in the beginning, right? Especially with something like even SEO. The first three months, you might be 
extremely discouraged because you're not getting a lot of traffic, you're not seeing any results. Same thing, like imagine you're doing YouTube at the same time where your subscriber base starts at zero and then you have like 200 subscribers after three months. Right? And then you look at your podcast numbers that you launched at the same time and you get like 200 downloads per episode and you're like, man, I'm doing all this hard work and you're probably working very hard when you do all these different things. But if you're going so slow, which is actually normal in the beginning, you're trying to figure out how this is working. What's working in this particular channel? How do people respond on YouTube versus podcasts? Like how does the algorithm work or how does this work? And what's the you know time factor for all of these different things? And it's really easy to then get discouraged when you see all these different channels working at the same time at a very slow pace and then say, oh, you know what? I'm going to quit. I'm going to you know go back to what I was doing earlier. Whereas you know if you just kind of kept going, you could have made it work, but it was just so easy to get distracted and lose focus. Whereas if you do one thing at a time, let's say you just focus on SEO, you're probably going to get exponential results in the same time, let's say three months, if you just focused on that. Imagine if you appeared on like 50 different podcasts in three months. Like how much would that do for your brand and for your business if you just focused on that versus trying to do YouTube, podcasting, blogging, and Facebook Lives at the same time? It's also, I guess, simpler because you're developing systems and processes around each activity that will that will help you. And you know, the time to create that that system is an investment at the the beginning. And it's only after you start repeating it many, many times that you realize the kind of efficiencies that that, that brings you. So I guess there's a level of that to it as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm I'm glad you brought that up because once you do something multiple times, not only are you able to create a system or build a process around it, guess what? If you have the budget for it, you can hire people to help you with that. And now you just teach them that process that you just created. And now other people are helping you do what you do best, whether that's, you know, blogging, writing, making videos or getting on podcasts or or talking. Once you have a process in place and you've done it enough times, the sooner you can get other people to help you with that sort of stuff, the faster things go. And so once you have that winning formula, just keep investing money by having people around you helping you with that. So it just goes so much faster if you have like five people helping you, you know, get on different podcasts versus uh, trying to do five different things at the same time. I think that's a really good segue into the the next question I was going to ask. Uh, how big is your team and what are the key roles that you've, you've hired for within it? Yeah, so our team is about 12 people now, including myself. And some of the key roles that we have is, one, I definitely like my ops guy, even though I'm an operational person. I love my ops guy, Brooks. He's great. And he kind of makes sure that everything runs on a day-to-day basis. Other key roles that we have is, believe it or not, I'm a big investor in my customer success team. So we used to call it customer service, but we now call it customer success because I'm a big believer in the whole idea of the more successful my clients and readers become, the more our business grows. And it sounds really simple, but... Once we change the name from customer service to customer success, people now on the team really understood that you know their role is to help people become more successful. It's not to answer questions or help out you know with their login problems or anything like that or processing refunds. No, it's really making sure that they're really successful and achieving the goals that they set out for themselves. Right. So now, for example, one of the things that we do is they have a budget aside every single month that they literally have to spend. Even if they don't want to spend it, they have to spend this money to help our clients. 
whether that's you know sending them flowers to buying them uh, a gadget or a tool or a planner or whatever they want to spend their money on, as long as it helps our clients to be happier or more successful, they have to literally spend it. So I'm setting aside money every single month to make sure that they help our clients. That's really interesting. What are some of the things which people have, have spent that money on? Yeah. So for example, simple gifts. So like we're big fan of like paper planners, right? Mm-hmm. So people have said, oh, you know, I use this planner with this uh, productivity app. How would you recommend that we use it? And then they'll answer that question, for example, and then she might marry or somebody else on the team might say, hey, well, it seems like you're using you know the five-minute journal or something. I'm actually going to ship you a new copy right now to you. And you're going to expect it in the mail you know, in the next two weeks, right? Or something else that would be like, hey, you know, I'm so busy with like with my kids and trying to raise them and stuff. And one thing we've done before is like uh, arrange like a house cleaning service to come by at their home and basically clean their home. Like whatever we can do to help them save time or you know be more productive, they literally <laughs> can spend it on whatever they want. So there have been some creative uh, ideas there and also really great stories. So I'm a big believer of that and just helping our clients as much as possible. And that's why... One, we changed the name from customer service to customer success, and also just having uh, this budget set aside every single month for them to to use it. That's an awesome, awesome idea. I'm totally stealing that, by the way. <laughs> Again, it doesn't have to be expensive at all. We started off with just a hundred bucks a month, right? And you'd be surprised how much that ROI is on that hundred dollars. Like, imagine just buying flowers for a client or a planner. Or like, hey, I'm going to buy you an annual subscription t- for this particular tool that you're using or something like that, right? Uh, imagine all the raving fans you can get from this, from just spending 100 bucks a month. So I think anybody can do this. It's really simple. And it also makes it fun for the team because now they get a new uh, budget every single month on the first. And you go, oh, yeah, we have this new money to spend, right? And they have fun at their job as well. So uh, it's a win-win for everybody. That's really cool, yeah. Sorry, you were you were saying some of the other key roles. I think you were about to move on to content something. Yeah, we have content creators, so people who help with the podcast. We have people who create course materials and such. So those are probably the most important people in the company because we're always evolving what we're teaching and how we teach things and just trying out new tools and software and such and making sure we set aside time for kind of like quote-unquote R&D. Yeah, so we do a lot of that. And then there's one marketing person as well that is kind of like this heart and soul of making sure the company continues to grow revenue and make profit. So yeah, those are the key roles, I would say. And then I can't forget my executive assistant. She's a rock star. Uh, Without her, I would not be able to run this business. So definitely want to give a shout out to, to Kelly. What's your role within the business these days? So I'm mostly focused on, one, talking to customers. So I always want to get a good idea of what customers are dealing with. So that's why I spend four to five hours a week just talking to customers, following up with them, and making sure just I hear their story and kind of like figuring out how I can continue to help them. So that's one thing I do. I also do a lot of training. So teaching team members like, hey, this is what the company is. This is what we stand for. This is what we do. This is how we help people. And always educating our team and giving them coaching and feedback that they need to be successful. I'm also mostly negotiating with either vendors or partners on certain things. I'm always the person who has to sign off on all the paperwork and such. And then helping out sometimes with the product ideas as well and developing content for that as well. So if you add that all up, that's pretty much my 
my weekly uh, routine now. Do you still handle all of the recruitment and hiring? Most of that is done by somebody else. I still do the final interview mm-hmm. with that person. So usually by the time they've gone through the gauntlet of like multiple rounds, yeah. the only thing I'm usually looking for is just a good core value match. So I don't even know if they're, you know, what their skills are, or how good they are, what they're supposed to be doing. I just want to make sure that they are a good company fit, that I can see them, uh, be part of a team, and also that I could spend time with that person and their family as well. And if I kind of like have that match feeling, the interview is just a kind of like a formality. You mentioned you had various stages in your, your hiring process. What does that look like at the moment? So it depends on the role, but basically we will put a job ad out there and try to get as many people to apply. And that's one thing I kind of learned over time is that the quality of the person you hire really comes down to the number of people that apply to your posting. So the more people that apply, the better quality person you will eventually find. You know, if you have only three people apply versus like a hundred, obviously it is more work to filter through people, but you also get the best person. So for us, since we have a content website and we have a big audience, most of our best hires are actually from our own audience. So people who are existing clients who've become members or people who've been following us for a while and eventually they saw an ad somewhere and they said, oh, you know, I should work for that company. So that's been our best source. And if you're running any sort of website and you have an audience, honestly, start off there. It's the easiest when people are listening to your podcast or reading your site. They probably have very similar values. They probably like what you do already. And as long as they have the skills or are willing to learn the skills, then the hiring process is going to be a lot easier. So there's that. And then usually they go through the first round of interviews. So Marmel, my team member, usually handles that. She just likes make sure that all the basic stuff is covered. Like they know how to write. They, they speak the language properly. I'm a big believer in like having good writing skills as a remote company. Because good writing just indicates clear thinking and just, you can just tell a lot by the way somebody writes. And so I'm always looking for that. And I make sure the team knows as well to look for that. So good writing skills is something I'm always looking for. Also having a track record of doing things outside of work, I think is really important because uh, one, you know, kind of like the whole work-life balance idea, but also two, if they take a lot of initiative outside of work, they're going to be very action-oriented in the business as well. So I I like that kind of trait. And so, yeah, when they go through the first round of interviews, if that goes well, they usually go on to the second round, which is usually interviewing with the team that they're going to be working with. If that goes well, then sometimes they'll talk to another person on that team one-on-one. It's usually the team leader. And then if that goes well, then it will usually be me as the last round. So that's kind of like the initial stages of people... uh, going through the quote-unquote, what we call the gauntlet. Are there any books on hiring uh, that you'd recommend? Yeah, I think the book Who is probably the best one and the easiest one. So there's this other popular philosophy called top grading out there. And we used to follow that. And it's a very tedious, long process. It's probably like five to six hours long. And I find that it's really not needed for our size of our business. You know, if you run a Fortune 500 company or something, and we're talking about millions of you know dollars in salary and such, I think that's a great process. But if you are running a really small business like myself, where you have like less than 50 people, something like Who, which is actually written by the son of the guy who invented top grading, 
that's probably the easiest process. And the easiest thing you can do is just one, not even worry about the skills that somebody needs, but what are the outcomes that somebody needs to hit to become a team member? So the easiest example is, you know, if you're looking for a salesperson, like what kind of numbers does this person need to generate in order to be, you know, a good salesperson. So that's what they call a scorecard. So once you create your scorecard for every single person you're hiring, as you're putting that together, you start to realize, oh, you know, maybe we don't have to hire somebody. Or if you do, these are the numbers you have to hit. And so when somebody comes on board and you're interviewing them, you want to make sure that they understand what their scorecard is and, and so on. And so part of my responsibility as well is to make sure we come up with those scorecards and I have to come up with them and sign off on them before we hire anybody. And so, yeah, that's probably the best resource. So just go on Amazon, look for the book Who by... Jeff Smart, yeah. Really easy to consume. If you listen to the audiobook as well, really easy to consume and implement. So I definitely recommend that resource. Yeah, and it's such a crucial part of any business, I think, hiring. Not just to sort of free up your own time, but any mistakes you make in, in hiring are, are just insanely costly in, in time and money and morale and various other things as well. So it's, it's something most entrepreneurs I know struggle with it to, to an extent, some, some less so than others. Uh, but it's, it's something that any business owner, I think, needs to, to pay a lot of attention to throughout their business life. Yeah, the common mistake that you definitely want to avoid is hiring somebody just because you like them. <laughs> like that's the worst thing you can do. And I, I know we've all been there. I've been there. You've been there. Let's make sure we, we don't ever repeat <laughs> that mistake again. Okay, and if we can just segue a bit into your product mix, what does that currently look like? I know you mentioned you have several courses and a subscription product and, and, and some other things as well. What do you currently sell at the moment? We have about nine products, I want to say, and that has changed over the years. So in the beginning of Asian Efficiency, we sold a lot of uh, low-dollar products, so anything that costs less than 20 bucks, And then we worked our way up to have stuff at like $50, $100, $200, $500, up to 1000 for just online courses and online programs. And then we have like a bunch of workshops now as well and seminars that we do every now and then. And then we have a membership as well where people get every single month a new course and new contents and coaching to help them uh, improve their productivity. So we have a big product mix and we kind of shifted over the last couple of years. In the beginning, we worked our way up to like a thousand dollar course and we were selling that consistently. And it's interesting, at least in our industry, and I also think in the overall marketplace of information products, uh, the prices are going down every single year and the willingness for people to buy like really expensive courses is going down too. And I've seen this in my own industry, but also in other industries as well. And so we've been really shifting our business model to be mostly subscription-based now. So for example, a few years ago, I would say 80% of our revenue was one-time sales. And now that's kind of flipped around where 80% of our revenue now is mostly recurring. And then the one-time sales is mostly from just like the smaller products that funnel into the subscription business. So it's just, you know, the information marketing and information products business is always changing. And I think in the future, this is just my suspicion and what I'm believing in right now is just that eventually it's not going to be free, free. People are always going to be willing to pay for information, but the prices is going to go down. And 
I think that, you know, there's still a lot of value in creating like $50 courses, $100, $200 courses, which we saw a lot of still. But eventually we do want everybody to move into the subscription side of the business, which offers not only information, but also coaching and events and so on. And why do you think that is that we're seeing that in other industries as well? Why do you think those prices, what's causing the downward pressure? I think one, there's a lot of good information out there that you can get for free. So one of the challenges you have to tackle when you create information products is how is this different from free? And this is something that we used to struggle with because in the beginning, most of our information products was just packaged information that we had for free on the internet and just package it up and just have it in one area, right? So we would have like even courses out there that you could literally get for free on our website, but because we put it in the members area, it would kind of like quote unquote save you time to go through that and you don't have to find anything and it would be a little bit simpler to go through. But then we started to learn that actually, you know, a lot of people don't want to buy this anymore because now they know and they're savvy enough that they can get it for free. And so how is this different from, you know, what I can hear on the podcast to what I'm seeing on YouTube to, you know, all these other resources and alternatives that are out there. And so as a course creator, you really have to think through that where, okay, how is this different from free? How is this better? Why would somebody pay this amount of money for that? And so on. And so that's something we really struggled with for many years because it's sometimes very difficult because uh, when you make epic contents, right, whether it's for a podcast episode or for a blog, sometimes you give away your absolute best for free. And then when you decide later on to make a course around that topic, your free information is kind of competing with your courses as well. So you have to be very strategic and also think about like, okay, what do I release? What do I not release? What's going to be a course? What's going to be free epic content? And that's something that we've experimented with a lot and kind of had to learn through trial and error what to do and what not to do. So yeah, there's just a lot of good free information out there you have to like compete with. And do you see in two, three years time, the the future of your, if I asked this question, then your product mix would be almost entirely subscription model then? I would say the majority would probably be subscription. I think we will always have a place for our products that are just one-time sales like eBooks and audiobooks. And I don't think that is ever going to go away, but the prices of those are definitely going to go down and it will probably be more of a acquisition product or channel for those to eventually get people into the subscription side of the business. For sure. Uh, and you also mentioned you had some sort of higher ticket things like coaching and, and live events. Uh, what do they look like and, and how, what sort of percentage of your, your sales or your, your subscribers take those things? So we have uh, a mastermind that we do once a year. And that's only invite only for uh, select clientele that we have. Then we also have like one day seminars and workshops that we do. And if I add that all up, it's maybe like less than 10% of our total revenue. So it's a relatively small part of our business. We've been only doing that for the last like 12 months or so. Really hardcore. The mastermind has been going on for the last three years, but the seminars and workshops and and such is something that uh, I want to actually grow because I do think that more people, at least within our audience, wants to be out there in the real world, not just like consume online courses, because there's also a lot of value in learning the same material in a 
real world setting, right? So you could literally teach the same course material in the seminar room and people can have different epiphanies and realizations just because they are in that room. And so that's something that we definitely want to focus on over the next couple of years and grow that side of the business. And yeah, right now it's a relatively small part, but I wish we make it bigger over the next like four to five years. Was that something you added because of demand from your customers? Were they asking you for that kind of product or how did you decide to introduce that? There's a couple of things. One is we do have a lot of demand for it. So people want to spend more time in person. The other thing is this is more of a general trend that I see is uh, long story short, I was interested in opening a board game restaurant not too long ago. And I love board games and I think they're a lot of fun. And uh, when I was doing the research on this, I noticed that board game sales have been going up every single year since 2008. So what's really interesting to see there is that basically people are seeking more connection and in-person stuff rather than you know being online all the time. And so when I saw that not only were board game sales going up every single year, board game restaurants all over the world are starting to become more popular. And there's a very successful concept in Toronto called Snakes and Lattes, where I visit that place. I talked to the owners. I was potentially thinking of like opening up a franchise here and so on. And so just seeing those two things happening at the same time, not just the overall trend of board game sales, but also just the demand, I have a very strong suspicion that more people are going to be craving like in-person, personal connection, real world stuff that I think is going to be kind of like the next wave of people that want to spend money on information is going to be there. So it's kind of interesting, right? Because like 20 years ago, everybody was doing stuff in person and then people wanted to move online. And that's still growing, obviously. But uh, for the next evolution of our business, yes, we will continue to do online stuff. But I think the next big thing for us will also be offline. Is the productivity space in itself continuing to grow? Or what, what's the sort of trend in, in, in your industry? I think it's growing every single year by a little bit. People are getting more overwhelmed. People are understanding the value of productivity. And there's a lot of free information out there that's always helping people as well. But I I think the closest thing that we can compare it to is kind of like executive training or executive coaching. And that has been kind of like a business or an industry that has been proven to work over the last 100 years. And uh, we're kind of like getting into that space as well, essentially, as we move up in price. But for the average consumer, they're becoming more aware of like productivity skills, all the soft skills that they need to be more valuable in the workplace. And so when you look at all the book sales of like productivity and self-help, and I would say productivity falls under the self-help category, you start to see those, those numbers are going up every year as well. People are willing to invest more in themselves. And productivity and self-help in general is just becoming more mainstream, right? Back in the day, it was kind of like kind of like a cool secret if you went to like a Tony Robbins seminar or something. And nowadays, it's much more accessible for more people. So uh, as that industry is growing, so is, is, so is ours. Something strikes me about you personally is you're very good at prioritizing what you want out of life personally. Uh, and maximizing doing the things you want to do. I, I follow you a lot on Instagram. I see all your stories of your travels and all these cool Japanese restaurants that you're always going to. It's interesting. I'm not saying that. For, I'm not saying for a second that you you don't work hard because you absolutely have worked your socks off to get get where you are 
today, but you seem to have a very strong work-life balance. Was this intentional from when you started or did you sort of hit a wall at any point? Did you experience some kind of burnout? How did you sort of engineer this, this lifestyle that you've built for yourself? Man, when I first started off, it was just, man, let's just work 80 hours a week and let's, let's get this baby off the ground, right? There were days when I was in Budapest, and I, I know you remember those days as well. Even though we were working at the office, after work, people would go out and have a drink and chill. And I would then go home and work on my next blog post. <laughs> and I've just been so focused in initial stages of like, hey, let's, let's get this puppy off the ground and, and grow it. And that was like that for the first four years or so, like just working really hard and quote unquote hustling. And, you know, I still believe in that. I think there's a lot of value in doing that, especially in the initial stages of your business, because you need that energy and that time to take your business off the ground. And after a while, I forgot which book I was reading at that time. There, there were basically a bunch of books and people I've talked to, but I didn't understand it at the time. But it was just one day it just all clicked in my head and it, and I start to realize, oh, you know, I shouldn't be a slave to my business. The business should really work for me. And uh, I was having a conversation with Roland Frazier of uh, Digital Marketer, the genius behind Digital Marketer. And one of the things he said was, you know, the way I structure my life now is I optimize for happiness. And when we we're having this conversation, I really didn't understand it at the time. But knowing what I know now, I totally understand where he's coming from. Like he's really successful in business. And, you know, does still work a lot, but now the way he does things is like he literally optimizes everything for happiness. And I kind of realized, you know, the reason we are all here on this planet is to live a happy life. Like at the end of the day, that's the emotional feeling that we all want. And that's what I believe in. And so when I kind of took that to heart, I said, how do I optimize for happiness? How do I structure my life to be like that? And that's when I started to change some stuff in my business where things became a lot more procedural. There's a lot more systems and procedures in place uh, so that I can do the things that I would like to do more often, right? So I can do, for example, all the stuff in the business that I enjoy the most, which is actually looking at numbers and thinking about strategy and uh, creating some really epic content every now and then too. Uh, and not do all the other stuff that needs to be done as well and is also just as important. But let's hire some people and have them uh, do that kind of work. And I just basically took the mindset of like, how can I have my business serve my life and my lifestyle, right? And so, you know, in the beginning, I was kind of like, okay, I don't want to be like a lifestyle designer or a lifestyle guy, but I do want to have a business that serves my life where I can still work hard, you know, do the stuff that I really enjoy, but also uh, make sure that I have the lifestyle calendar where I can literally pick and choose what I would like to do and enjoy my life. And so once I took on that mindset of, all right, let's make sure Asian efficiency serves me, not the other way around. That's when I started introducing all these different changes. I think that's uh, it's really interesting. Uh, there's it's, a, it's kind of a spectrum. So I see some people who go too much in the the other direction where they're they're not working hard enough and their business doesn't really take off, especially in the early days. And then there's another set of people who they're almost afraid to take a vacation or to take any any time off, either because they have some kind of emotional attachment to or drive or, I don't know, some responsibility to, to just work nonstop, or they haven't built the systems or have the team in place, which can run the business in most part without them. And it sounds like you've done that. 
you've done a very good job of creating that structure and that environment where you can you can sort of go away and either take a vacation or go you know work on a new project or, or do whatever you're doing and it still kind of continues and especially when when you're talking about the the podcast where your team were sort of pushing to start it and they you just okayed it they built it they started it they grew it uh, I think that's that that's really cool and uh, I think a lot of people can definitely have some some good takeaways from that one so final question is there anything which I didn't ask you which I should have asked you well I can talk a lot about <laughs> food productivity what's your best productivity hack Oh, the best one is really simple. Do the hardest thing first thing in the morning every single day. So if you have your to-do list ready and you look at it before you start your workday, pick the thing that you think is the hardest thing to do and do that very first thing in the morning. If you just do this simple thing every single day when you go to work, you will be infinitely more productive than anybody else. And it's just this confidence booster and momentum builder where... Once you get the ugly stuff out of the way, everything else in comparison is really easy to do. And you just have this like confidence and aura about yourself where you go, oh man, I am so productive right now. I can do anything else. And so whatever comes your way throughout the rest of your day, whether you have meetings that maybe take up a lot of your time, you have like unexpected things happen to you, just because you had the hardest thing out of the way first, even if you know you don't do anything else, you can still go to bed knowing that you had a really productive day. So that's the one thing I always tell people to do. Is the hardest thing the most challenging thing, the, the longest thing, the thing you're least looking forward to do? How, how do you define it specifically? Yeah, what I've found for most people, at least, is that the hardest thing is usually the most important thing for them as well, right? So for example, if you want to build your business especially in the beginning, a lot of times it's not always the fun things that you have to do. A lot of times it's the things that you don't want to do but are just as important, if not important. And a lot of times the harder things that we must do will bring infinite more return and value if you do them. And so if we only do the fun things all the time, yes, you know, you're going to have fun and you're going to have a good time, but there's also going to be a lot of things that you're going to be missing out on. And it's easy then to procrastinate on the hard things and just postpone that till the next day. And then that turns into next week. And then before you know it, you actually never do it. And then maybe it will bite you down the line. And so I always recommend people do the hardest thing, whether that's you know something actually challenging or something really important, but you feel uncertain of how to do, or you just feel really, you feel like you're about to procrastinate on this. But if you get that out of the way first, the fun thing you want to do is still going to be there. And it's actually going to be even more fun once you get the hard thing out of the way first to, to do the fun things. Awesome. Okay, well, listen, we've gone on for an hour and 20-something minutes now, so I won't take up any, any more of your time. But thanks so much for coming on and, and going so deep into the, the inner workings of your business. I'm sure a lot of people will get a lot of value out of this. How can people reach you? How can people find you? I, I presume AsianEfficiency.com. Is there anything you want to plug or any um, social media profiles that you want to share? Yeah, you can find us on all social media channels. So Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever you use. Uh, just look for Asian Efficiency. We have a website, AsianEfficiency.com, where you can get free resources as well to help you increase your productivity. And uh, we have a popular podcast as well called The Productivity Show. So if you look for The Productivity Show, you'll find us there as well. 
Yeah, and I think the if you go to asianefficiency.com slash podcast, you can find all the episodes and links and goodies there as well. So definitely check that out. They have, I think, 230-something episodes now. And if you're into productivity in any way or you're unproductive in any any way, then it's definitely something I would uh, I'd recommend check, checking out. The guys really know their stuff. So that's everything for today then. Uh, once again, thanks to Tan Pam for coming on the, the show. And we will be back next Monday with another episode. Thanks for listening to the Authority Hacker Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, don't forget to rate us on iTunes and send us a screenshot on authorityhacker.com slash bonus to claim your free premium Authority Hacker training.